Reformation Sunday, so you knew it had to be me. I was telling somebody before the service that I actually put my name on the preaching calendar for this morning about a year ago, because I was so excited. And uh, you are going to be so excited too after this, I hope. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please turn them to Romans chapter 4. If you don't have a Bible, our ushers would be happy to give you one. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that one home with you. It's our gift to you. We'd love for you to read the Word of God for yourself. Consider the claims of Christ and its truthfulness. And of course, as long as I'm up here, I might as well sell you a book. If you are interested in learning a little bit more about the Reformation, I have a very tiny, look at how tiny it is. You can read this. This book, it's called The World Turned Upside Down. It's a short little book about Martin Luther and the start of the Reformation. We have some out in the book booth. Please feel free to go and buy all of those. Okay. Well, let's pray and we'll get started. Father, your word is powerful. Please help us as we come to consider it and consider the examples of those who have spoken the word of God before us, considering the outcome of their faith, that we might imitate their example. Lord, help us ultimately to see more of Christ in his glory as we just sang, that our salvation is in Christ alone. So show us Jesus. In your word we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. On October 31st, 1517, an Augustinian monk named Martin Luther nailed a set of 95 theological statements to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, Germany. Uh, This was not a particularly uh, audacious move. The church door was kind of like a bulletin board. It's where you hung stuff that you wanted people to see and read. And he was hanging this set of theological statements because he was calling for Uh, an open debate about them. Uh, And he did not know that that act would send Europe and eventually the entire world into a firestorm. It was symbolically the start of what we call the Protestant Reformation, which fundamentally the Protestant Reformation was a recovery of the gospel. Now, If you did the quick math, and Benjamin cheated because he already said it, but if you did the quick math, Tuesday, October 21st, 2017 is the 500th anniversary of that event, which is why we're making such a big deal out of this. It only happens once every 500 years. But why should you care about the Reformation? Why does the Reformation matter to you and to me today, right now, Why are we taking time to talk about it this morning? Well, I think it's because ultimately the gospel matters. The Reformation matters because the gospel matters, and the Reformation was a recovery of the gospel. Uh, But but what did the Reformation... Oh, I've got to turn this on. What exactly did the Reformation recover about the gospel, and, and from what did it need to be recovered? Well... Primarily, the Reformation was a recovery of the gospel from the the teachings of the medieval Catholic Church, uh, and specifically on two subjects, two very important subjects. One is authority, 
and the other is justification. And so there were these two questions that drove the entire Reformation. Uh, the question of authority, that is, how can I know what is true? How can I know what God says is true and what I ought to believe? And the question of justification, how can I be right with God, which Benjamin rightly just said is the most important question we can ask. How can I, a sinner, stand in the right before a holy God? Now, the Reformation and the Reformers, as we call them, Martin Luther and John Calvin and many others, in their study of Scripture came to these conclusions and, and these answers to these two big questions shaped the Reformation and has shaped uh, the, the evangelical church from that time on. And that's, that's where we are. We, we stand in the tradition of these, of these men who were reading Scripture and rediscovering what it said about the gospel. And so to these questions, they said, how can I know what's true? I said, well, Scripture alone is our highest authority. How can I be right with God? Justification, being declared to be in the right before God, acquitted of sin, is by God's grace alone, through faith alone. And so, this morning, I, I want to think through these questions with you because they're very important questions, not for just 500 years ago, but for today, because we are faced with the same kinds of questions. And I want to I help you see how the Reformers answered them, what was going on at the, in the church uh, at the time, how the gospel was recovered, and why 500 years later it matters for us. So for each of these, this is Here's where if you're, if you're OCD like me and you need to see the outline and everything, here's where we're going. Under both authority and justification, we're going to look at what was the church teaching at the time, what does the Scripture say, what did the Reformation recover, and what difference does it make? So especially if you're OCD, it's a nice balanced outline. Uh, you don't need to come up to me afterwards and get me to change it because that's probably what I would do if there was an unbalanced outline. So, this does mean that we're going to do a little bit of history. I see some of you looking for the nearest exit. We're going to talk about the Bible too, I promise. But we need to do a little bit of history because I, I want to help you understand the situation that the Reformers were in so that you can understand how radical it was that they recovered the gospel out of this. So, what we're going to do is we'll look at what the church was teaching, and then we're going to go into Romans 4, because Romans was one of the key books that the Reformers were reading as they were coming to this rediscovery of the gospel. We're going to look at the book of Romans and see how Romans helped to shape the way that the Reformers read this and, re and recovered the gospel. So, but first we're going to talk about the issue of authority. How can I know what's true? What was the Roman Catholic Church teaching at the time about authority, about how someone could know what's true? Well, in the medieval Roman Catholic Church, there was uh, an idea that, that authority in the church was like a three-legged stool. One of the legs was written scripture, so the Bible. Another was unwritten traditions. 
Uh, so things that had been passed down uh, through the church over various years uh, that had kind of come to be in, uh, con considered authoritative uh, by the church. And then the third is the pope and the bishops, which is uh, the, the fancy word for that, if you want the, the fancy $10 word, is the magisterium, the teaching magisterium. So you can tuck that one away and impress your friends with it. Now, here's the problem, though. Beyond that, the answer that we give is that Scripture alone is, is the highest authority. These were three, uh, in, in theory, three equal authorities that the church appealed to. But Scripture was only in Latin. Uh, Jerome had, had translated uh, the, the, the Bible from Greek and Hebrew into Latin in the 400s. And then for the next basically 900 years, the Bible was just in Latin. The problem is people didn't speak Latin anymore. Only the people in the church and who were really trained in, in schools and universities, which is not a ton of people, spoke Latin. Many of the priests who were ministering in churches didn't speak Latin. They could mimic it for, the, for mass, but they, they didn't speak it. They couldn't read the Bible. The unwritten traditions were, by definition, unwritten, and so they could change whenever somebody decided they could change as they were being passed on from generation to generation. So, in reality, authority in the local church in the, uh, right before the Reformation, looks something like this. Yes, the Scriptures, but the Scriptures can only be mediated and taught and authoritatively interpreted by the Pope and the bishops and the people who can actually read Latin. The unwritten traditions, well, the Pope and the bishops, they're the ones that, that are able to, to pass those on. So it really came down to everything that, that the, the church, the teaching authority of the church was saying. And this was Martin Luther's context when he was, as an Augustinian monk, he was also a theology professor at the University of Wittenberg. And uh, as he started lecturing through books of the Bible, he began to see discrepancies in the Bible with what he was being taught by the church. And uh, not too long, maybe two years before he nailed the 95 theses to the door of the castle church in Wittenberg, he started lecturing through the book of Romans. And he would later say it had a, a transformative effect on his understanding of what was true. So let's turn to the book of Romans. I asked you to turn to Romans chapter 4. And we're going to look at some of the things that Luther would have been reading. And that Luther began to see that there were a lot of similarities between what he was going through and what he was observing in the situation that Paul had found himself in. It's Romans 4. The context of Romans 4 is Paul has just you think back to when we preached on Romans not too long ago, the context is that Paul has just finished arguing that justification is by faith alone. He said justification is not by works, it's by faith, it's by faith in Jesus, which would have been a radical change for his Jewish readers. That's not how they understood things to have happened. See, because at the time, 
there was a lot of different teachings in Jewish tradition about how a person came to be right with God. And particularly, one of those teachings dealt with the figure of Abraham. Abraham's the father of the faith. And so they would appeal to Abraham and say, uh, one, one book said, a uh, Jewish religious writing at the time said, well, Abraham was found faithful by God. He was obedient when God tested him, and therefore God credited to him as righteousness. You see, the, the kind of authority that, that tradition had uh, in, in Jesus' interactions with the Pharisees in Mark 7, when his disciples aren't washing their hands before dinner, a ceremonial washing of the hands, and, and the Pharisees get all upset, and Jesus says, you guys have a really fine way of setting aside the Word of God for your tradition. So, Paul is dealing with some of the same kind of problems in Romans. So, he gets done and he says, this is not uh, contrary to what you've read uh, in the Scriptures. This is not contrary to what God has taught in the past. This is how God's always done it. And so, beginning of Romans 4, you can imagine his uh, his Jewish opponent, he's kind of putting words in his, his opponent's mouth and saying, well, you're probably going to ask, what then, verse 1, shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh, is found? That is, if you're saying what's true about justification, Paul, then what are we to make of Abraham? Uh, because he was justified by works, wasn't he? That's what our tradition says. That's what we've been taught. And Paul responds to the question by, by kind of playing along in verse 2. He says, well, if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about. He, he can take pride in the fact that he was justified because he earned it. But then Paul quickly follows by refuting that. If Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about but not before God. It's like Paul saying, you know that's the way, that's not the way that God works. God, God doesn't work on the basis of reward and merit. And Paul's opponents would, would be saying, no, but that's exactly what our tradition says. It says he was justified by works, Paul. You're, you're missing the point. So how is it that you can claim that people can be right with God through faith. And then Paul drops the apostolic hammer. Verse 3, for what does the Scripture say? Paul's saying, you guys keep appealing to your tradition. You guys keep appealing to your tradition and saying, well, we know this is how a person becomes right with God because that's what our tradition says. That's what we've been taught. That's what the authorities say. Paul says, what does the Scripture say? Your tradition says Abraham was found faithful by God when tested and it was credited to him as righteousness. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. And so the point that Paul's making here is that the Jewish tradition had actually come to contradict Scripture, that through years of, of being calcified in traditionalism, they had forgotten what the Bible actually said. 
And Paul goes back and shows them, I'm not making anything up here. This is not new. This is something that's always been taught. Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. Do you see the similarities with what was going on at the time of the Reformation? You had an authority in the medieval Roman Catholic Church that had over the course of a thousand years been calcified through all of this building tradition upon tradition upon tradition upon tradition and not actually going back to what the Bible said. And so the, the reformers began to question what, what the church was teaching about this authority, the, the traditions, and, and they did it on a number of subjects as they read, and the more that they read, the more they became convinced that it is Scripture alone that is the highest authority because Scripture, as we just heard, as we commissioned our elders, Scripture is the only infallible rule of faith and practice. It is the very Word of God. And so no man-made tradition can contradict it or supersede it. And they were so convinced that the Bible was the Word of God that they were willing to stand and to face the threat of death because of their conviction. An example of this would have been in, in 1521. If you've ever seen the movie uh, Luther, there's been about four of them that have come out, uh, so pick the one that you like the best. Um, if you've ever seen the movie Luther, the, the dramatic scene is all at this place called the Diet of Worms. Um, and you, you have to say it like that, otherwise it's the, the Diet of Worms, and then you have to explain what that means. So it's a tribunal that Luther was called to uh, several years after he posted the 95 Thesis and the Reformation really got started, he was called to account for what he was teaching. He was still a part of the Catholic Church at the time. He was trying to reform it from the inside. They hadn't excommunicated him yet. So they, they brought him to this tribunal and they sat him down. It's just him. And, and they put all his books in front of him and they say, you need to recant of all this stuff, basically, or you're going to be excommunicated. And uh, side note, the last guy that uh, didn't recant of his views, we burned him at the stake. And so Luther replies like this, unless I am convinced by the testimony of the scriptures, or by evident reason, for I can't believe the, the popes or the councils alone, they've erred repeatedly and contradicted themselves, I consider myself conquered by the scriptures adduced by me, and my conscience is captive to the word of God. This sentiment is evident in the, the hymn that we just sang that Luther wrote, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. That word, above all earthly powers, no thanks to them abideth. That the word does not stand on equal footing with human authorities. It doesn't stand under human authorities. It is not propped up by human authorities. It stands over everything because it is the voice of God given to us. And so we don't get to, to stand over it and judge it. We don't get to put it side by side with other things. We get to bow in submission to what God has said. So when we want to answer the question, this question that was driving the Reformation, how do I know what is true? We can answer like, like Paul 
What does the Scripture say? We can answer like Luther. My conscience is captive to the Word of God. And what difference does it make in our lives? Well, the, the danger to subvert and abandon Scripture, the authority of Scripture for the sake of other sources of authority was not merely an issue for Paul and for Luther. It is, of course, an issue for us as well. And so we have to think about it maybe in two ways, that, that Scripture has authority over other external authorities, other people, other teachers, other traditions. So in, in both our doctrine and in our practice, both in what we believe and what we do, we are only bound to what the Scriptures teach. And this means no one else can come to you and say, you must do this, you must do that, you must believe this, you must believe that, if it's not in the Word. Somebody comes to you and says that, you say, where is it written? What does the Scripture say? Conversely, that also means that you cannot require of anybody else that they believe or do something that's not written in Scripture. Sometimes I think this is a harder one for us. We have a, a list of, of rules of things that in order for somebody to be orthodox or in order for somebody to be godly, they must fit this list of things that we have, which oftentimes is superimposed on top of Scripture. And when we see somebody not following our list, we feel a compulsion to go to them and tell them, you're not following the list. How can you be sure that you're saved? You can't hold anybody to the standard that Scripture does not hold them to. And nobody can hold you to a standard that Scripture does not hold them to. So the, the Word trumps all external authorities. But maybe more importantly for our culture is that Scripture is also authoritative over our own internal authority. This is what our culture is like we're not as much in danger of bowing to other external authorities that tell us what's true. The authority that we usually bow to is the one that lives inside of us and says, this is what I think is true, this is what I feel, this is what I desire, therefore it's right. And so, if the scriptures are authoritative over not just external authorities, but internal authorities, it means that a nice long line. <laughs> in both our doctrine and our practice, we are in fact bound to what the Scriptures say. We don't get to pick and choose. The Bible is not a buffet that we stand over and we say, I want a little bit of this and I want a little bit of this, but I definitely don't want that. I don't agree with that because it doesn't make me feel good. That's not the way it works. The Scriptures alone and the Scriptures in their entirety are the inspired and errant infallible Word of God and they are our authority in all matters of doctrine and practice. And so when, when something, uh, when you have to make a decision about something, either something you're going to believe or something you're going to do, how do you respond? Do you, do you ask, what does the Scripture say? Or are you more prone to ask, well, what, what makes me feel good? What do I want to believe? 
when it comes to, to really hard topics in our culture. Things like homosexuality, transgenderism, abortion, things that are very controversial and very painful and very difficult. How do we respond? Do we respond by saying, well, I just couldn't believe that God would say that or God would do that or whatever. Because when you say that, who's the authority? You. You're saying, no, I'm not going to go with the word of God because I just couldn't believe that God would do that. And say, no, this is an opportunity for you to say, I don't understand everything, but I'm going to submit myself to God. So the Reformation recovered and reemphasized the, the biblical teaching that the scriptures alone are our highest authority, the final authority. It's the only infallible word of God. And based on the authority of the Bible, reformers also argued that the church was incorrect on another central issue. That issue was justification. Justification, big word, just a reminder, means to be declared right before God. We're all guilty because of our sin, and we need to be declared right before God so that we might be forgiven, acquitted of our sin, uh, welcomed into his family, and so forth. So justification, Martin Luther said, is the article on which the church stands or falls. So what was the church teaching? Well, a, a misperception, I think, that's out there is that they, they didn't say, uh, pe people think, well, the medieval Catholic Church uh, didn't think you needed grace. Well, that's not actually true. Everybody thought you needed grace. The question is, how does that grace come, and what role does it play in justification? And so, uh, the, the Roman Catholic teaching at the time was summarized by uh, a guy named Gabriel Beale, who uh, said it this way, basically, to the one who does what is in them, God will not deny grace. So, you do your best, and God does the rest. Or, God helps those who help themselves. So, it, it, it looks something like this. You do your works, you do good works as much as you can, you do what's in you, and if you do what's in you, if you do your best, then God will give you grace, and that'll give you the little extra Red Bull push so that you can be justified at the end of your life. But you could never be sure whether or not you had done enough to please God. You could never be sure whether or not you had done enough uh, to merit God's grace. You could never be sure that you had reached that point where God was sort of contractually obligated to give you grace. And so for the vast majority of people in the church, that meant that you lived in constant fear that you hadn't done enough. And then there's all sorts of other things that would, uh, you have to do because of that, sacraments and penance and all that, and this whole thing is massively oversimplified. Martin Luther was particularly troubled by this. This is what he said. This is looking back on his life. This is how he described his life before he came to 
understand the gospel. He said, I was a good monk, and I kept the rules of my order so strictly that I may say if ever a monk got to heaven by his monkery, it was I. <laughs> Luther is always fun to read. If I had kept on any longer, I should have killed myself with vigils and prayers, reading and other work. But if I had lived and worked to all eternity, my conscience would never reach comfortable certainty as to how much it must do to satisfy God. Whatever work I had done, there would still be a nagging doubt as to whether it pleased God or whether He required something more. If I could believe that God was not angry with me, I would stand on my head for joy. And then Luther's, with this troubled conscience, is lecturing to theology students on, on the book of Romans. And we'll turn back there again, back to Romans chapter 4. Because ironically, as you may have noticed, the issue, these issues that Luther and the Reformers were dealing with with the Roman Catholic Church at the time are both found right here in Romans chapter 4. The authority of Scripture and then the question of how a person becomes right with God. So, Romans 4, picking it up in verse 4, Paul picks up his argument about Abraham's justification, where he just said that the claim that Abraham was justified by works is, is false, it's not supportable, uh, because it's actually completely the opposite of what the Scriptures teach. So now he's going to unpack more what it actually looks like for Abraham to become right with God. Verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but what is due. It's interesting, that word, a favor, it's actually the word Grace. In Greek. So it would read, Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited by grace or as grace, but by what is due or by debt. So Paul would say, You think Abraham is justified by works? What a person gets for their work isn't grace, it's what they've earned, it's their due, it's their wage. So if Abraham was justified by works, then God owed him justification. He had put God in his debt. And he had done that because of his works, because he became godly. He was obedient and so earned it, merited it. But we just went over the fact that Abraham was not justified by works. So how does this whole thing work then? Verse 5, this is my favorite verse in the Bible. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies who? The ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Who is it that God justifies? It's not the godly. It's not the ones who show themselves obedient and then become worthy of God's love. It's the ungodly. It's the people who are completely helpless and have nothing to give to God to earn their salvation. It's truly grace because it's not deserved at all. And then how does somebody come to be justified? How does somebody come to come into that right relationship 
with God. It's not by their works. It's not by their obedience. No, it's specifically the one who does not work, but believes, believes in Him who justifies, who declares right the ungodly. It's faith that leads them to be counted as righteous. Later in the chapter, Paul will, will uh, bring this more to a conclusion. He goes through more of explaining what's going on with Abraham, and he says, now it was not for Abraham's sake only, verse 23, that it was written that it was credited to him. So it wasn't only about Abraham that it was credited to him as righteousness. That, that wasn't the only thing we were talking about. But it was written for our sake also, to whom it will be credited, as those who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead, he who was delivered over because of our transgressions and raised because of our justification. Paul says this is not just true for Abraham. It's, it's true for us. Who's the us? The people who believe in the God who raised Jesus from the dead. As credit, we will be credited as righteous because of His death and His resurrection. He was delivered over for our transgressions. He, he died in our place as a substitute for our sins. He rose for the dead because of our justification. He, he was, uh, if He had died and stayed in the tomb, it would have proved that He wasn't anything that He said He was, but because He rose again, He validated everything that He said. He proved that He had made a full and sufficient payment for all sin. And so, the only work that's necessary to happen before you and I and Luther and Paul could be justified is not our work, it's His work. It's Christ's work. We simply must receive that gift through faith. So, what did the Reformation recover about this? God justifies not the godly, but the ungodly, by grace alone, not by merit, not by working that they might earn a right to God's grace and they receive it not through faith, uh, not through works, not through sacraments, but through faith alone in Christ alone. The people that the Roman Catholic Church was saying justified, uh, were justified, were those who were godly, who, who did what was in them and, and thus deserved God's grace. But Paul would say later in Romans, if it's by works, it's not by grace, because then grace is no longer grace. When Luther discovered this truth, he said, I felt that I was altogether born again and had entered paradise itself through open gates. The gospel that Luther recovered was truly good news. Uh, Luther later uh, paraphrased this section of Romans 4 in uh, another theological debate he was in, and, and, it, and it shows you how he drew on a text like this to, to explain what the gospel meant. He said, he is not righteous who does much but he who without work 
believes much in Christ. The law says, do this, and it is never done. Grace says, believe in this, and everything is already done. The authority of Scripture alone had led Luther to rediscover the gospel of justification by faith alone. And it did turn the world upside down. We are beneficiaries of that. So what difference does it make? Well, hopefully you can see what difference it might make in in your own life. This is at the heart of the gospel. If we lose justification by faith alone, we lose the gospel. But beyond simply protecting this doctrine, we need to think about its relevance for our life. And there are two glorious truths that we need to to wrestle with in relation to our justification. Depending on where you are, where you stand with God, what you think about Jesus, these may have more or less relevance to you. Having talked to many of you, I know how many of you come from a background where you were taught, where you thought you had to earn your justification with God, that you had to earn your forgiveness by good works. The gospel that Paul preached, that Luther rediscovered, says you don't have to earn your justification through good works beforehand. Because when people say things like that, well, God helps those who help themselves. Just do your best and God will do the rest. I think to myself, no, that's, that's not at all what the Bible says. It doesn't say God helps those who help themselves. Later in Romans 5, Paul says this, while we were still helpless. At the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. To say that God helps those who help themselves is the most blasphemous statement about the gospel. God helps those who are utterly helpless because of the work of Christ. And so, if you're here today and you are thinking that you can pay God in advance for your justification by doing your good works, that you You'll never know if you've done enough and you're just trusting that maybe you live a good enough life that God will forgive you. There's freedom for you in the gospel. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Trust his work instead of yours and you will be saved. That is the promise of the gospel. Now, for others of us, the issue is probably something more like this. I can say this because it's my It's my own struggle, and having talked again to many of you, I know that this is probably a struggle that many of you face, though you maybe don't realize it. You will will affirm, oh yes, of course, I'm justified by faith alone. Yes, yes, I'm right with God, not by my works, it's by faith. But here's the deal. You don't have to pay God back for your justification by doing good works afterwards. Right? So sometimes we get this mentality that, yeah, justification by faith, that means that God gave me a loan. He loaned me salvation, and He said, okay, now you got to pay it back in installments, and you better finish it before you die. The problem with that is that it's still not by grace. You're still earning it. You're just doing it afterward. Justification is an instantaneous declaration that you are finally, fully, forever counted righteous before God because of the work of Christ. 
You don't have to earn it beforehand. You don't have to earn it afterwards. In fact, you can't. But I'll tell you what, if God justifies you, you're going to do good works. But it's not going to be out of fear. It's going to be out of love for him who died and rose again for us. Ultimately, all of this matters because in every generation, including our own, there's a danger that the gospel will be eclipsed and opposed and distorted by all sorts of falsehood. But the truth of the gospel is a matter worth fighting for. Paul thought so. The reformers thought so. We think so. It's not a game. It's the difference between death and life, hell and heaven, judgment and forgiveness. Where do you stand? I'll be like Martin Luther and say, here I stand. I can do no other, so help me God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Almighty God, who through the preaching of your servants and reformers has caused the light of the gospel to shine forth, grant, we pray, that knowing its saving power, we may faithfully guard and defend it against all enemies and joyfully proclaim it to the salvation of souls and the glory of your holy name through your Son, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. God bless you. Have a wonderful week.